Welcome to the Innovations in Anti-Aging Living Show with Dr. Ann Trong. Here's where we'll explore how to live your best life with stem cells. Listen in to hear key opinion leaders, mentors, motivators, and other guests discuss about stem cells innovations. Stem cells will redefine medicine. This show will lead you to slow down aging and thrive to live the life you've always wanted to live. Hosted by Dr. Ann Trong, the international best-selling author of Erectile Dysfunction Fix Using PRP to Treat ED. And she has been recognized as Entrepreneur of the Year. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164. Hi, I'm Dr. Ann Trung, and I'm so happy that I'm here today with Dr. Don Buford from the Texas Orthobiologic Institute in Dallas, Texas. I've been trying to get this interview since the beginning of 2019. We finally get a chance to sit in front of each other today and this handsome man to talk with me. And I'd like to find out a little bit about who Dr. Buford is and what made him who he is today and his thoughts on stem cell therapy and how to live your best life. So Dr. Buford, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first off, thank you for the invitation. It has taken a while for us to connect on the podcast, and I really appreciate having the chance to talk to you and, and your, your listeners. I um, you know, grew up in, in Southern California and grew up in Los Angeles or in a suburb of Los Angeles and have two younger brothers. And our family grew up in a, a part of LA called the San Fernando Valley from a very young age. The, the two things that were important in my life were sports and academics. Uh, my mother was a, a longtime teacher and uh, my father was a professional baseball player. So we had, between both of our parents, we had those two things in our lives from a very, very early age. And um, that Mom was a teacher of what? Mom was a uh, elementary and high school teacher mm. for many, many years. And then once she started having children, we became her, her uh, classroom of three. They didn't call it homeschooling back then, but that's basically what she did. When we weren't in school, she was you know, making sure we could we could uh, stay engaged and interested in, in, in uh, academic things. And so that type of uh, interest in, in new things and, and exciting things started very young. So then uh, you grew up there and where did you go for college? And mm-hmm. your, what was your uh, high school like? I went to a small private high school in uh, North Hollywood called the Harvard High School. And it had been a military academy back during the uh, the wars in the in the mid-century you know in the 40s and even through the 60s and by the time I started there it was no longer a military school but it was an all-boys day school and I spent uh, four years there and played on a lot of the sports teams and and uh, had a chance to focus on academics at the same time what was your favorite sport then uh, baseball it's always been baseball um, so I was on the baseball team and on the football team there and went to Stanford for uh, my first college and spent two years at Stanford. Also was still on the baseball team and had already decided at that point to be a doctor. So I was pre-med and uh, economics major at Stanford and also part of the baseball team. Wow. And then uh, after my sophomore year, I transferred to USC back home in Los Angeles and finished up at USC. So two years at Stanford, two years at USC. And did you continue to play baseball for co- at college? I did. I played I played at both colleges. That was really the reason for my transfer was because I was playing behind a player at my position who was an All-American and excellent 
and uh, I wasn't going to beat him out anytime soon. So I wanted to go someplace where I could play for at least two years in college. So I transferred to USC and had a chance to play there and start on that team for a couple years. Um, and then went on to play professionally for four years. Part of that overlapped going to medical school, but but uh, that was always like wow. I said, so you became a professional baseball player mm -hmm. for yeah, what for team? The, uh, for the Baltimore Orioles. Wow! Mm -hmm. Did you guys hear that? This is a pro baseball uh, <laughs> player for the Baltimore Orioles. From what year to what year? So I played in their organization from 1987 to 1991. Sounds like a long time ago. <laughs> that was before med school. That was part of it was at the same time. So that was one of the issues that came up when I was interviewing for medical schools was that I already had started playing professional baseball and the way the baseball season runs doesn't, you know, baseball wasn't designed to, to accommodate a medical school first year or second year student schedule. So we had to work with the UCLA faculty, the medical faculty at UCLA to make sure they understood that I was gonna show up a little bit late and leave a little bit early to, uh, to play baseball. So I did that for a total of three years. Um, I took a couple years off of medical school total, but then in the off season for a couple years, I also went back and, and got the first two years of medical school essentially completed in the off seasons. Wow. So you did that while playing professional baseball and how long did it take you to finish uh, med school at UCLA? Total of five years. About five yeah. years. So I started, you know, most of my friends who went straight into medical school started right after they graduated college. That first year I took off completely. And then I took another year off in between my first and second year of medical school. So. My time at UCLA was really five years, but it was really six years after graduating. What position do you play? Mostly second base. Second One season base. I played left field, but mostly second base. Well, that's something new. Yeah. That's something new that uh, we've learned. So then uh, what made you stop baseball in 91? At that point, I had to choose because I was going into clinical rotations at UCLA, which are year-round, and there was really no way for me to take any more time off from school without having to start back over as a year one student. And so I had many conversations with, with the faculty and you know, with the Dean of Student Affairs who were always very supportive and amazing. But it got to a point where, you know, as quickly as medicine changes, I, I couldn't still be in the same grade or the same class three years later. So the decision was either come back and start the clinical rotations full time, or if you wanna come back, good chance you'll get admitted again, but you'll have to start over in the undergraduate, or not undergraduate, but in the first two years. And so uh, I took that information, went to the Orioles and said, hey, look, am I gonna be in on the 40-man roster, which is basically the big league roster? And after talking it over with them, I didn't really have any other options, so I decided to go back to school full-time. That must be a hard decision. You know, it was a hard couple months deciding, but you know, my parents supported me whatever I, whatever I wanted to do all the way through, and they were very supportive of the decision ultimately to, to go back to medical school full-time as well, so. So when Michi decided to go to med school, when you had a career as a professional baseball player and probably made a lot more money. Oh, no, no, no. I think my, I think my <laughs> first minor league contract was like $700 a month. Um, now, this is all pre-internet and, you know, but, you know, in that last year of playing professionally, if I had been on the big league team coming out of spring training, I probably would have stayed, honestly. But I always had a love for medicine. And really, it was even more specific than that. It was really a love of orthopedics. Because in high school, in my last year in high school, I had a chance to spend six months shadowing an orthopedic surgeon. And that tied in, obviously, with my love for sports and being able to um, understand how the body worked and how people heal from injury and how to put things back together. All those things are right in my wheelhouse. So after spending six months with the doctor, his name's Dr. Steven Schneider, after spending six months with him, I knew what that ultimate picture was going to look like for me. I just didn't know when. And uh, I was trying to get a little bit of baseball mixed in in the, in the interim. And when it was time to stop that, I, I knew 
that I was going back to uh, really to be an orthopedic surgeon. It sounded to me that you were very focused. You knew what you wanted to do mm-hmm. at an early age in high school. Mm-hmm. How did you get to be that way? I, I was just always curious. You know, I, I like, I think my mother would tell you, I always like taking things apart and putting things back together, even before I was into middle school, you know, even as a, as a baby. And so that interest in doing things with my hands and mechanical structural things was always there. And that just translated quite naturally into, into orthopedics when the time came. So it really wasn't, it always seemed very natural to me. You know, it never really seemed like a decision. I was one of the, the few students in medical school where not only did I know what I wanted to be, I knew I was very specific. I wanted to be a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon and that was good and bad. It was good because I had a goal, a, a distinct goal in mind, but it also made it a lot harder to sit through biochemistry in year one, knowing that I probably was gonna need a whole lot of biochemistry down the road, but, but was interested in it from an academic perspective. So. Yeah, I, I was I was more focused than than some because I knew what I wanted to be. But but uh, I guess at any point something could have changed my mind. I just haven't found it yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you have an injury uh, when you were younger? No, I was fortunate. I never really had a significant orthopedic injury all the way through playing sports. So I was lucky. Yeah. Right. So really, your encounter with the orthopedic surgeon in high school that on the, on the team yeah. that may perhaps have made that yeah, revelation. He, he was a true mentor. You know, I look back at what he did for me, which was taking a, essentially a 17-year-old student into his clinic and then even into the OR to watch. I wasn't, obviously wasn't able to do anything, but, but to watch at a time when sports medicine was just starting to be arthroscopic. And it was just a really exciting time because everything was new. And I happened to, to meet him at a time when the instruments weren't there because they weren't invented yet. And he had the kind of mind that uh, he was an inventor. And so I got a chance to hear him think and then see his thought process. And gosh, wouldn't it be neat if we could do this and this and a couple sketches and a couple weeks later, and he had a, he had a, you know, a rough draft of it. So just learning from somebody who, who as it turned out was tops in the world in his field was just a, a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. But what he did for me is, 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 uh, was truly amazing now as I look back at it. Yeah. Wow. So you went to UCLA for med school. Mm-hmm. And then what'd you do your residency? So residency, I ended up coming to uh, UT Southwestern here in Dallas. It's a county program and a level one trauma center. And I interviewed at several other places. And this is really the only county hospital that I interviewed at. And one of the reasons I wanted to come here was because knowing that I was probably going to be a sports medicine arthroscopic surgeon, I really wanted to operate a lot. So I wanted a chance to do a lot of trauma. I wanted to go someplace where there was so much business that nobody cared back then. You know, as long as there was a fifth year and a second year resident in the OR, you guys have at it, get the case done. And, you know, this is before we had residency, our restrictions, and and before we even had faculty, you know, requirements and things like that in the OR. And things still got done and got done very well. But that was the reason for me wanting to come to UT Southwestern was a chance to actually be hands-on and, and really know the anatomy really well because that really makes me a better arthroscopic surgeon when I'm dealing with a small portion of that anatomy. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so that's what brought you to Dallas. That is. You haven't left Dallas since. I have just for one year. I went back, so I went back and did the fellowship with my mentor. Oh, so, wow. So that was, a, that was a nervous interview. <laughs> that, and, and what's his name? Uh, Steven Schneider. Do you th- at, you, at LA? Yeah, at, at their group is, uh, they're still very busy and very well respected. It's called the Southern California Orthopedic Institute. And they've run a sports fellowship for, you know, all the way through. They, they've got hundreds of, of uh, very well-trained sports medicine docs all over the world. But, you know, funny story, I went back to interview 
for the fellowship, you know, because everyone has to interview. And at the end of the interview, the fellowship director, who obviously I'd known now since I was 17, wow. said, well, where else are you applying, Donnie? And I said, I, I got this look on my face like I, I, I didn't apply anywhere else. <laughs> I, was, I was really hoping you guys let me in. And so, so I went back there for a year in 99 and then in 2000 came back here and I've been in private practice ever since. I see. So that must have been a great year to meet up with your mentor again, who really start you on the pathway of yeah. orthopedic medicine. So. Especially being at that stage where now I was a surgeon, now I could operate, now I could uh -huh. you know, do a lot more things. Than so did he let you do a lot when you oh, were yeah. back there? I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was an apprenticeship like everyone else, so I, yeah. had, to, I had to pay my dues and learn. Mm-hmm. Great. So you went back here and we know that you wanted to do ortho. And it's funny because I, I put down, take down notes says you wanted to do tons of surgery. Mm -hmm. And then I, now we know what you're doing now to mm -hmm. add that. So tell us all your journey from doing, wanting to do surgery and then add, and then adding now orthobiologic. And I want to clarify to our listener, orthobiologic is using your own healing power of your body to help you heal from an injury or trauma such as your blood, which is called platelet-rich plasma, or from your bone, uh, from your bone marrow called bone marrow, um, bone marrow. So yeah, so tell us about your journey. Well, especially with my, my focus on doing um, so much shoulder surgery, you know, there are injuries that patients have that even though we can do a technically good operation, it, it may not heal. You know, the, the, the tendon may not heal back to the bone. That was the most common issue that we saw in shoulder surgery was somebody would have a rotator cuff tear, for example, and even though we would repair the tendon back to the bone, it still wouldn't heal. And, and that was a well-known you know, aspect of, of shoulder surgery with, with that type of injury. And so when orthobiologics, and, and at that time, platelet-rich plasma was getting more press and, and getting more literature published on, on when and where it might be useful, um, I did an early study back in 2000, oh gosh, um, I think it's probably 2009. And uh, it was using PRP for rotator cuff healing, trying to see if we could get a higher percentage of these injuries to heal. Because it was an area in surgery where the results weren't 95% success rates. They were closer to 60 to 70 in an older patient. That first study actually didn't give me the answer I wanted. So I kind of stayed on the sidelines for another couple or three years. What, what answer were you looking for in that first study? Well, in that first study, I was hoping to see that we were either increasing the percentage of tendons that were healed or shortening the time it took for them to heal. Or with the, PRP alone? With PRP alone, you know, at the time of surgery. So using PRP right at the end of stitching the tendon back to the bone, putting some PRP there, trying hoping that it would create a, a faster healing process, accelerate the healing process. And we didn't show that result. So I, I was discouraged, but, but you know, I didn't give up. I just kind of sat on the sideline a little bit. And, and one of the things that you know is in orthobiologics, PRP could mean a lot of different things. And so that's when I really started getting more interested in the biology of it and spent three or four years just kind of learning what what it was and how it worked and why there's different types of PRP. How did you start kind of thinking, oh, I want to add PRP to my surgery. And to me, that's, that's very innovative, for, mm -hmm. especially for an orthopedic surgeon who mm -hmm. was focusing on doing a lot of surgery. Mm -hmm. So if you did rotator cuff surgery, didn't get better, you go in again, do mm -hmm. another surgery, and, mm -hmm. then, and then, you know, let's do a shoulder replacement. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how does somebody like you say, well, I'm doing rotator cuff, I need to add something else. What the heck is this PRP? How, mm -hmm. how did that, about? Well, some of that came from, you know, in residency, we, we, we learned some, some orthopedic basic science. And 
the things that are in PRP are, are the most common things that we know about are, are reasonably well studied. You know, they have names. We know what the protein names are. We know how they work, most of them. And so that basis in science was attractive. And, and obviously in orthopedics, we use bone graft all over the place to try and get bones to heal and for non-unions and malunions and spine surgery, fusions, things like that. So the concept of using your own body's biology to help things heal wasn't that foreign. It was just the actual process of transporting it from your vein <laughs> to the centrifuge and then putting it back in the shoulder was a very foreign concept. You're absolutely right. And First, after making sure that it was safe, which is part of the reason I stayed on the sidelines at the beginning. I didn't want to be the first to that, to that arena without having some safety data. But then there were some reports of success, you know, of, of, of people that were using it in a way that, that was successful. And, you know, some of those early studies were based on the platelet-rich plasma, that kind of the gel type that you could put sutures in. You know, it's kind of a thicker membranous yeah. thing. And so that made all of us think maybe it needs to be more membranous than liquid. And, and some of that data still holds up today. So yeah, just keeping an open mind, you know, just really keeping an open mind. And I think that's been something I learned even before medical school by working at, at SCOE and with Dr. Schneider and some of the other faculty there was those guys, you know, the other people working with them had to invent things. I mean, they, they had to see a problem and think, gosh, how would I fix this? I need an instrument that would do this. They had to see anatomy arthroscopically that hadn't really been described arthroscopically. And so they wrote it up and described it. And so just seeing that process, it became ingrained in me and in all the other fellows that went there. The other thing that they were genius about was they videotaped everything they did. And I've never stopped doing that. So every surgery, we videotaped them. So I've got a video, unless there was a mechanical problem, we have a video of everything that we've done going back to 1999 now. Wow. So you so. start first doing your first PRP case that combined the, with surgery was in 2009? Yeah, it's been about 10 years. Yeah. 2009. I have to go back and look. But that was the one that you did one. You didn't see the result you mm -hmm. expected. Mm -hmm. Took about a couple of years mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And then what, what happened? And then we came back to it. At that point, bone marrow concentrate was making the news a little bit. We were starting to hear a little bit about things that were happening in Spain and in France with PRP. And um, people that are now well-known and well-respected, but they were just, you know, rumors were trickling out at meetings like this where you'd, you'd, you'd have lunch with someone who would say, yeah, you know, I've been using this and it's been making a difference. We're going to write it up, but we've been using it for a couple of years and we're happy with it. And so I think that's one of the big benefits of meetings like this one is you get kind of an early ear to the ground appraisal of some of the new thoughts that are out there. And so when I heard that, I, I was very interested to go back and revisit it, knowing that at this point with my surgical practice, a lot of what translates into a surgical failure is biologic. It's not mechanical. It's not because the anchor is too weak or the suture is too weak or the technique is wrong. It's because the tissue doesn't have a good blood supply or the tissue doesn't have uh, enough collagen. It doesn't heal through a normal healing process. So the chance to affect the surgical outcome with biology is I think the next stage in orthopedics. And if we can do that Without surgery, which we're finding more and more, great. But in the areas where we still need surgery, I think I think minimizing the biologic failures is what orthobiologics is all about. 
Well, that's really great. I, I totally understand that. And I hope that our audience understand that. So, so to say it simply that surgical uh, success is not just so much in going and fixing something. It's really their own internal structure. And it's based probably upon, you know, their uh, comorbidity, mm-hmm. their, their nutrition and their lifestyle that mm-hmm. are, affect the outcome of mm-hmm. the uh, surgery. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So what what do you can you go further elaborate on that what is what does that mean if you're going to talk to a patient mm-hmm. and they have a meniscus tear and you want to optimize their healing mm-hmm. what does that mean I mean you mentioned the comorbidity some of the things are well described smoking for example in orthopedics is has a well-known correlation especially in fracture healing to have a negative impact those are things where I would rather have somebody on you know nicotine gum and not physically smoke even if it's only for three months but luckily by using Chantix and some of the other medications that are out there, we can get people to minimize their their uh, smoking if there's enough of a um, indication that it will negatively impact their outcome. So, so with what I do, somebody with a large rotator cuff tear who's 70 years old, they're having so much pain and they're weak enough that they, there is a reason to do the surgery. If they happen to also be smokers or diabetic, we really want to optimize that before surgery as much as possible. So we, we use as many allies as we need. We use their primary care physicians, their internists, their rheumatologists or what have you to, to help us have them in, in as good physical health and metabolic health as possible. I think the orthobiologics aspect is just another avenue of that because the orthobiologics are better too if the patient's healthier. You know, what we're drawing out of their blood or out of their bone marrow is going to be be more impactful in the healing process if they're healthier in, in general. So if somebody that has all those conditions and mm-hmm. they doesn't want to take the step to optimize their mm-hmm. you know, self before the procedure, mm-hmm. would you still do the surgery on them? Yeah, a lot of times you have to because nowadays if we're going to surgery, it's usually because there's a structural problem. It's rare that we operate just for pain anymore. It's never a great indication to operate anyway. but. But usually there's a structural problem, and that's where I think orthopedics will always, at least orthopedic surgery will always have a role. When something's not where it's supposed to be and it needs to be held in position to heal, then uh, that's hard to do with a needle and a, and a liquid type solution. So if somebody still needs that done, we, you know, we do the best we can, but sometimes there's, there's uh, other social or socioeconomic factors that make it hard to to optimize as much as I may like in a given situation, yeah. What percentage of your surgery are you using either bone marrow or PRP as an adjunct? Between 10 and 25%. Not as much as you think. Where I do use it is where we have a larger injury or a more chronic injury. And if I think specifically about shoulders, for example, the larger rotator cuff tears or somebody who's had a chronic rotator cuff tear, somebody who has a large rotator cuff tear and is diabetic, or has uh, you know some other um, say they've had the gastric bypass you know some other issue that may come into play, in all of those patients we at least have the conversation about orthobiologics. They don't all opt to do it because we still have a, a gap in our insurance coverage for these procedures, unfortunately. So it becomes a cash pay additional cost to the patient if they want to do that. So I try and be thoughtful and offer it to the people where I think it makes the most sense. You know, somebody comes in who's in their late 30s and they had a fall at work and they have a small to medium rotator cuff tear, we can repair those and they're going to heal 90% of the time without any other orthobiologics. But that same 30-year-old, 20 years later, who's now 52 and is now he's got a five centimeter cuff tear that's been there for two years and we're going to try and fix it, maybe we have to put a patch in also 
but that's the patient where we're going to say, you know, we could probably add BMC and, and get you an extra five to 15 percentage points of, of healing, you know, you go from a 60% success rate to 75, for example. And in that type of clinical situation, I think that would make sense. So we try and be thoughtful about it. Not everyone, yeah. Is it being re reimbursed with using bone marrow or PRP intraoperatively? Neither one. Neither one? Neither one, yeah, at this point. Neither one of them are being reimbursed, yeah. All right, so the, it, it's absorbed in the, a facility fee then? We do it in the same way that we do it in the office, which is as a cash pay additive cost to the patient. So, you know, a lot of the facilities are on a, a single payment type of reimbursement. So for example, I'm just going to use numbers that I'm making up just to, for you know example purposes, but an insurance company may do a rotator cuff repair and their entire payment for that surgery may be $8,500. And from that, they have to pay you know, the facility costs, the nursing staff, implants, everything associated with that surgery, you know, dressings, everything. If we add a rotator cuff, uh, add a stem cell procedure to it, which is normally a $3,000 charge, give or take, most facilities aren't gonna be able to absorb that cost. So without any separate reimbursement right at this point, and because it's still considered a non-covered procedure by virtually every insurance company, uh, it has to be a cash pay for the patient. With that concept in mind, what, where do you see sports medicine orthopedic surgery at this point where, and how we're going to integrate orthobiologic? Uh, and I asked you that because in my town, there is a, a 12 uh, orthopedic group, multi-specialty group mm -hmm. that was not doing well financially and mm -hmm. was bought over by uh, our local hospital system. And so is another surgical group of mm -hmm. five surgeons. And mm -hmm. we're seeing that more and more. Mm -hmm. So how can... You know, as a, a solo orthopedic surgeon mm -hmm. and wanting to do orthobiologic, but yet the insurance milieu is not acceptance of that. Where mm -hmm. do you see the future going? Well, I, I think um, at least with PRP, I'm hopeful. I've been saying this for 10 years, but I'm hopeful that we will have some coverage because... You think that will materialize in the future? I, I hope so before I'm done practicing because, you know, my talk tomorrow at this meeting is on PRP and stem cells and orthopedics. And so tomorrow for 40 minutes, I'm going to show level one evidence for PRP, which there's a tremendous amount across multiple different joints, across multiple different tendons and ligaments. And so the idea that PRP is is experimental in orthopedics is just hogwash. And so Can you say that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the idea that PRP. I think that's very, very, yeah, very. No, the idea that PRP is experimental for a lot of these orthopedic conditions is just hogwash. Now I will be the first to admit that for stem cell procedures for cellular therapy, there is much less, much less data in the literature. And so I, I understand the, the hesitancy for an insurance company to cover that. But even with that, there are some level one papers, uh, particularly with bone marrow concentrate for certain orthopedic conditions. So the, the, the issue that we hear in the media that, you know, it's a hot button topic now with all the stem cell disasters we're hearing about in the media. And, you know, the media is very quick to publicize negative actions and negative outcomes, it seems. And rightfully so, because I think a lot of these clinics are doing the wrong thing for some of these people. We try and stay evidence-based. What I was going to say about the stem cell aspect of it is, uh, you know, our, our first job is to be safe and, and to make sure that procedures we're doing are safe. And I think that's well established for the orthobiologics that we use, at least with PRP and stem cell. We have a regulatory issue in this country, particularly with stem cells, that's really on the clinician's shoulders to make sure that the, the orthobiologic they are using 
is uh, regulatory compliant. It's not something we've traditionally had to think about before, at least with an orthopedic surgery, because I'm not bringing my own instruments into the OR or my own anchors. If I did, I would have to make sure that they were, you know, 510K approved and all these things. But typically we're getting company help for that. So now we have a, another clinical modality where we do have to worry about regulations. And that's, that's something that a lot of us haven't been taught. The waters can sometimes be significantly muddied by salespeople and distributors and, and just by the FDA itself, frankly, because sometimes it's not easy to understand what they mean in their regulations. So, so I've tried to stay on the side of being very conservative in that aspect of it. And I think that's why stem cells have been a little bit slower to be adopted, because it's hard to know exactly where the studies uh, need to be done. There's a lot of talk about needing level one studies, and uh, we're just in the process of completing a study on that concept. And what we're going to find and show is that across the top 10 orthopedic journals, the average level of evidence is three. Yeah. So that's the average level of evidence right. across orthopedics. So can you explain the difference between uh, FDA uh, regulation 351 and 361 uh, sure. is? And then we'll talk about the birth products. We'll go into different sure. birth products. So the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is, is the organization in the United States that's charged with essentially preventing communicable disease, protecting the public. And they have the authority to regulate drugs in this country and to regulate biologic drugs, which really they just consider as another type of drug, it just happens to be biologic. As the use of these biologic drugs has grown over the past 20 years, the FDA has been a half step behind because we've had new technology faster than they can regulate. And so the current framework, which has essentially been the same for the last couple or three years now, is that we have several pathways to get these biologic drugs to market. The Section 361 that you refer to is referring to a, a, a biologic product that is considered safe, in, in quotes, by the FDA, meaning that there's no cells, meaning that the route of administration is not dangerous. I'm significantly summarizing, but the bottom line is if, if, the, if the biologic doesn't have cells, is, is not given in a dangerous way, you know, meets a few other criteria, then the regulatory burden on the company that wants to sell that is very, very low. It's an online form. It takes about 30 minutes to fill out. It's free. You basically just have to identify the name of the company, the name of the product, what it is, and the FDA basically doesn't regulate it any further. You know, it's kind of like a scout's honor type of system. The problem with that is a lot of these companies use that regulatory pathway because it's very cheap and, and, and easy, but then they create websites and marketing campaigns saying that this product, which is an allograft product, and we'll get into that, or a birth tissue product, actually does have cells in it. And as soon as you make the claim of cells, whether or not it's true, as soon as you make that claim, it becomes the other section that you mentioned, section 351. That is a much more stringent regulatory pathway because that is the same pathway that most drugs have to go down, meaning that you need animal studies, efficacy studies. Usually you need small pilot trials showing this new biologic drug versus the current established standard. And these studies can take five years, 10 years, uh, millions of dollars. And at the end of that process, just like we see once a month, a certain drug may not get approved. And that company that spent 10 years in R&D developing that drug is, is they don't have a recourse. The FDA has ultimate authority. And so to date, to my knowledge, none of the birth tissue products, for example, have gone down that 351 pathway, at least in the orthobiologic arena. And that's become a real sticking point in using some of those products because 
every time the FDA has spoken about it, and they've spoken a lot about it recently, they've said that all of these products that are birth tissue products are Section 351. And since none of them are regulated or registered that way, that makes me as a doctor or as a surgeon um, in the wrong for using a product that's it's an unapproved drug. It'd be just like me taking drugs from Canada or Mexico into this country that aren't approved in this country and then using them on patients. And, and I hope that our listeners pay attention to that. And we're going to dive into what these birth products that mm-hmm. Dr. Buffer is referring to. So let's talk about Wharton Jelly mm-hmm. and Amnion. Those are mm-hmm. the, some of the birth products. Mm-hmm. So the birth tissue products as a whole are things like amniotic fluid, Wharton's Jelly, umbilical cord blood is a popular one. Those products have been on the market now for six, seven, eight years, something like that. A pretty long time. And, and the attraction of them, I think we all understand. Wouldn't it be great to have something we could just draw out of a bottle, you know, frozen, thaw it out in five or 10 minutes, draw it out of a bottle and inject it wherever we need to put it and be done with it. That, that's an amazing concept. And I hope, I, I legitimately hope that one day we get there. The problem is that those birth tissue, pro- there's several issues, but number one with the birth tissue products is that they are all regulated as section 361 products. They're all regulated as not having living cells, because if you have living cells and your product is from another person, it automatically makes it a drug and it makes it regulated as a drug. So, um, so none of them have the correct registration. Okay. There is a company that did it the right way. There may be more than one, but there's only one that I know of. And it's a company called MyMedics and they have a product called AmnioFix. And the 21st Century Cures Act that was passed a couple years back gave us an additional pathway besides 351 and 361 for these products to get to market faster. The abbreviation is RMAT. And so MyMedics went to the FDA, said, hey, we have an amniotic fluid product. We'd like to see if it works for knee arthritis. And it has to be that specific. You can't say we have this new product. We want to use it in humans. It has to be a very specific indication. And the FDA said, okay, arthritis counts as a significant social burden in terms of healthcare costs. And clearly amniotic fluid does not meet section 361 criteria. So you do qualify for an RMAT and they granted them, I think it was, it was the 15th or the 19th RMAT out of, there's been like 36 now. So, but they got an RMAT. The fact that the FDA granted them the RMAT kind of justified back then that they needed an RMAT, that, that it truly was not properly registered under 361. Otherwise the FDA would say, you guys are good. You're already registered as 361. You're good. And this was a company that never even claimed living cells. Just the fact that it was non-homologous, which is another term that we hear a lot, the fact that amniotic fluid is not found in the knee, it was enough to make it a drug in the FDA's eyes. And so the same problem exists with umbilical cord blood, which is not typically used in orthopedics or around anything orthopedic. It's not in the knee. There's no umbilical cord blood around my elbow or in my spine. Uh, Wharton's jelly, same problem. As many people interested in the field have asked more and more questions of the FDA, the FDA has become increasingly specific and, and recently has finally answered the question by saying, yes, Wharton's jelly, for example, should be section 351. And so I can go back and give you 15 emails from Wharton's jelly people saying, no, it's 361. Well, now the FDA has really eliminated that kind of gray area. They've actually specifically said on paper from one of their directors that these birth tissue products are 351 biologic drugs. And so, I haven't ever heard of a company giving money back to a doctor. I've heard of patients suing and getting some refunds. I think that happened in North Dakota where the attorney general forced a clinic to repay people. And I think it might be happening. 
there was a well-publicized case in New York with Park Avenue stem cell, very similar type story, slightly different to orthobiologic. Like the court is requiring the clinic to give patient back their money that they pay for, for mm -hmm, whatever mm -hmm, indication. Mm -hmm, yes. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, hopefully there'll be more and more cases where there's teeth in the enforcement because, you know, we have to remember the FDA is not an enforcement body. They, if they want to go after a clinic, they can send a warning letter. But if they really want to get an injunction, they have to call the Justice Department, which then has to review everything and put their rules in motion. So you've got two agencies in the federal government that have to combine and coordinate. I'm very impressed by the FDA's willingness to move on this. We all wish things would happen faster, but, right. but the truth of the matter is the private legal system happens a lot faster. An analogy, mm -hmm. if a patient it goes to your clinic mm -hmm. and they're offering Wharton jelly, amniotic mm -hmm. fluid, placenta mm -hmm. tissue, all that, it's really it's like getting a drug from another country, bringing it in without an approval from the FDA mm -hmm. at this point, right? That's exactly the way I see it. And I think that's yeah. the easiest way my patients understand it when they ask those questions. And the sad thing is that's just the first problem with those products. The second problem is the evidence. You know, part of my talk, the title is evidence-based orthobiologics. So if my patient, you know, if you come to see me and as a patient and say, what's the evidence for using Wharton's jelly for my knee arthritis? Zero. I mean, zero point zero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I don't have a paper I can hand you and say, here's a paper that shows not even 25 people treated. So However, if you say, what's the evidence for PRP for my knee arthritis, I can give you a meta-analysis that looks at 17 published level one papers. And so there's a tremendous amount of evidence for PRP for knee arthritis, and there's a fair amount of evidence for using bone marrow-derived stem cells for knee arthritis, just not as much as PRP. But, and so as a clinician, for me, even if it was legal, regular, I shouldn't say legal, even if it was regulatory appropriate, the lack of evidence would still make PRP and bone marrow concentrate my preferred choice because that's where the evidence is. Right, right. Yeah. Issue to consider is yeah. possible contamination mm -hmm. as well. I have a patient that I saw about a month ago mm -hmm. was exploring to get Wharton jelly infusion for MS uh, yeah. to see if the clinic was promising him that it can yeah. reverse his MS. Yeah. So those claims are outrageous, as we know. Yeah. And I believe you had mentioned that. Can you talk about the clearance in the in the? Mm -hmm. Can it cross the blood-brain barrier, or what yeah. happened to these infusion when it goes to the lung? Yeah, it's 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 scary what some of the clinics claim. One of the easy little, it's not a mnemonic, but the easy little catchphrase we have on some of our material is if, if the stem cells don't come from your own body, they're not really stem cells. So if any clinic's telling you they can draw frozen stem cells out of a bottle, I would find somebody else, okay? There's a well-known biological effect that happens when you put cells in the venous system. So if I do an IV and put cells into my IV and they go to my lungs, because that's where the blood goes from the vein, they go to my lungs, and they get passed through progressively smaller blood vessels and capillaries, and they get trapped in the lungs because ultimately the cells are bigger than the vessels and they stay there. And so it's called the first pass effect and it, it, it pre-existed orthobiologics. This is something that has been studied in, in pulmonary physiology for many, many, many decades. And it hasn't changed just because there's people now charging for stem cells in a bottle. So that first pass effect means that whatever you inject IV, even if it really has stem cells, so let's just say we were injecting bone marrow concentrate, those cells are gonna stop in the lungs. So for me to tell someone I'm gonna inject IV stem cells and they're gonna go out to your kidney, it's not happening, not, not 
on this planet in humans. <laughs> so, so when people are told about neurologic diseases or, or essential nervous system issues, whether it's autism or MS or dementia of any form, there's been a lot of research ongoing, some of it in this country, a lot of it outside this country. But at least in my perusal, there hasn't been anything definitive on that front and certainly nothing that can be done in a clinic in the United States. Right. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't seem like it can cross the blood-brain barrier. I wouldn't yeah. think so. Yeah. Uh, if they can't even pass the, in the lung. Right. So let's talk about exosome. What, mm -hmm. what's going, what, where is exosome a place with all this? So exosomes have become popular in about the last three or four years as kind of a pivot from, and this is just me trying to think like if I was a businessman. If there's a regulatory problem with cells, then wouldn't it be great? I need a, I need a product that doesn't have cells, but I can still say works like cells. That's what exosomes were marketed as. Um, because exosomes, you know, it's a nice, fancy, slick name, but basically they're just vesicles that, that come off of cells, and inside the vesicles are various things that cells produce for export. There's several issues with exosomes. Um, exosomes are made from stem cells. In order to make exosomes, you have to culture stem cells. So the FDA ruled many, many years ago that culturing stem cells is equivalent to making a drug, and you cannot use cultured stem cells in this country without specific regulatory approval, which to my knowledge, no one has in a clinic setting at this point. And that was the case with uh, regenerative sciences based out of Colorado with, with a, a good friend of mine who made a very cogent, valid argument that this is the practice of medicine. I should be allowed to do as a doctor, you know, something with my patient, which with their body, that's practice of medicine. And the FDA still won that case saying, no, you're making a drug as soon as you culture. So fast forward to exosomes last four years, you have to culture cells to make exosomes. The FDA has already said that culturing cells is making a drug. So just on the very face of it, the product of making a drug is probably still a drug. And so that was the initial regulatory opinion from many attorneys that I talked to. So exosomes are registered as 361 to tie it back to that. They're not registered as being a product of, of a biologic drug process. The other problem as a scientist with exosomes is our stem cells in our bodies create these exosomes based on the environment they're in. So if I have tennis elbow, the stem cells that are trying to help my tennis elbow heal are creating things to help my tendon heal. They may be bringing more collagen, more blood supply, doing all these things to make that, that tendinopathy heal. Those exosomes may be very, very different from the exosomes the stem cells in my arthritic knee are making. Where my arthritic knee may have small particulate chondral fragments, there may be chronic synovitis in my knee, and the stem cells that are trying to deal with that problem may be producing exosomes that are much more anti-inflammatory. There may be more IRAP, more A2M. You know, I'm just throwing out protein names. But so the point is, stem cells make exosomes based on what the problem is. You can't just go to a lab and make generic exosomes and put them any place in the body and expect them to be appropriate. So that's why it's always made much more sense to a lot of us. You put the stem cells there because now the stem cells are by my tennis elbow. They're going to look around and say, hey, this is a tennis elbow problem. Let's make tennis elbow exosomes. Or if I put the stem cells in your knee, in your arthritic knee, they're going to say, hey, this knee is really inflamed. And hey, there's a little cartilage floating around. There's cartilage missing over here. Let's make exosomes for an arthritic knee. Okay, that whole process is lost if you just buy exosomes in a bottle. I've asked the question of, of our exosome manufacturing colleagues, what environment are these cells being grown in? And the answer I've gotten now six times is that's proprietary. That's proprietary. They, they, they don't want to say. And there's companies outside this country that culture stem cells and they throw away 
$200,000 worth of exosomes a day because they know it doesn't work. Hmm. They know there's no science. And so believe me, if they were interested just in their bottom line, exosomes are just what's left over when you, when you culture cells. In a nutshell, those are the main problems. There's the additional problem of a complete lack of scientific data. So there's no studies so, 0. so far 0. on human studies for exosomes? Nope. If, when I ask the question of, can you point me to a single human orthopedic study showing exosomes work? Zero. And I did that web search today, <laughs> this morning. So that is current as of 8 o'clock this morning. Because um, I wanted to make sure my talk tomorrow is up to date. So, so zero. So that, if that was the only issue, that would still nix that product for me because there's no data for it. Then you add the fact that it averages about $900 per cc. So it's incredibly expensive. It's and, more expensive than gold. And it should be listed as the 351. Absolutely. As a and you add to the fact that about two weeks ago, the FDA specifically said that exosomes should be 351. Black and white. So, right. so there's, there's so many things pointing against it that, you know, again, I'm not against it. Other than the fact that right now I can't do it until there's A, regulatory approval and B, science. Okay. As soon as we get those two things, and if it works and it's better than PRP or stem cells or some surgery I do, I'm all in. I am all in once I have that data and regulatory approval. Well, Dr. Buffer is unique in that he can do orthopedic surgery, and then he can also use your own cells to help you heal yourself as an adjunct. So uh, if I were to come to you and I have a rotator cuff tear, what would be your assessment of me? Let's say I've, I'm, let's say I give a, a case of a 70-year-old that had uh, one rotator cuff surgery years ago, mm -hmm. and now is unable to lift his arm, a diabetic and, and hypertension you know, maybe BMI of 30. Mm -hmm. And so what would be your approach? In general terms with rotator cuff tears, I like to, to do an initial distinction between traumatic tears, which virtually all should be fixed in my opinion, because if you had a normal tendon today and you fell and it's torn tomorrow, there's no reason why we can't put it back and fix it. Even as a full thickness tear? Oh yeah, as a, yeah, absolutely. Versus the chronic degenerative tear, which may develop over time, because we all know that if we get MRIs on on 170 year olds, like you just described, probably 60 to 70% may have tears of varying degrees that are, most of them are gonna be asymptomatic. And so why some people have more pain and less motion and strength with a tear that's degenerative, we don't really fully have worked out, but the more comorbidity someone has, so diabetic, you know, high BMI, multiple other medical problems, a larger tear, we may give orthobiologics a chance because the issue may be pain and not function. The higher the pain is on the problem list, the more likely we are to just try orthobiologics because one of the studies that we just completed in August of this year that is currently in, in publication, in, in print for publication, was using bone marrow concentrate for uh, partial thickness cuff tears. And we showed a very high success rate in minimizing pain. Uh, patients returned to function, but the MRI scan didn't change. So we didn't show structural healing, but we showed functional recovery and without surgery. And, and the other big part of that study, I think, that will come out is we also showed arresting progression of the tear. So these, this average age was in their 50s and their tears didn't get worse, even though they were back at work and back playing. And somebody who's, who's 70 with a large tear and, and, and has a loss of motion, loss of strength, if we give them some physical therapy and we give them maybe an orthobiologic injection or two and they get better, great. However, if they don't, then I don't think we should punish those patients by not giving them a chance to get better with a 45-minute surgical procedure. Our arth arthroscopic procedures now are, are short. They're minimally invasive. The results are good. We have, we have 
pretty good level three data in most instances showing that even in an older patient, even partially repairing a full thickness tear gives them pain relief and gives them some better function. So um, it may not be as quick of a decision to go to surgery in the patient you describe compared to a traumatic tear, but I, I still think there's a place for it if they get far enough into their rehab process where they're not getting better and they're still having dysfunction. So would you say a traumatic tear, would you still add a little bit of PRP to kind of accelerate the healing? In a larger tear, perhaps. You know, the smaller traumatic tears that, that, are, that are still dysfunctional, I, I think they heal pretty reliably now. But if somebody has a more of a catastrophic traumatic injury, four centimeter tear, five centimeter tear, maybe it's been six months and they have a little bit of muscle atrophy now, those are the patients I think where an orthobiologic may help. So what about one that are degenerative but full thickness tear? Mm -hmm. Very similar thing. You know, Philippe Hernigau's work out of, out of Paris in France showed that uh, he, he got an incredibly high success rate injecting bone marrow concentrate into the bone, which is, makes good sense if you think about it, because that's where the stem cells live, and then putting a third of those bone marrow concentrate injections into the tendon that he just repaired back to the bone. So two-thirds in the bone, one-third in the tendon. And, and that, he showed, was statistically significant, was uh, significant in improving the outcomes in terms of healing. I think you know, we're all born with intact rotator cuffs, so if it's possible to have it healed back to the bone, I think it's, that's better than just leaving it detached if there's a way to do it that's safe and it's, it's, it's right. you know, cost effective. Yeah. And I see that you balance on both worlds and you mm -hmm. know, getting the mm -hmm. best of uh, both worlds. Mm -hmm. So what we like to know is what, what is your advice to how we can live our best life? Or, you, know, you say you're in your 50s now, you had a, a good career and you're still mm -hmm. doing well and you want to optimize your living. What, mm -hmm. what would be your advice to live your best life? Oh, I, I think probably the best advice I ever got was probably in fellowship, that fellowship year at, uh, at the Southern California Orthopedic Institute, which is kind of all things in moderation. I, I've stayed active. I think as our metabolism slows down as we get older, it's important to recognize that that's happening because if I hadn't changed my eating habits, regardless of my activity level, my weight's going to creep up over the years. And that happens to all of us. So there's only a couple ways to combat that. But if, uh, if I want to go to Starbucks and have one of those great blueberry muffins, that means I've got to play about two and a half hours of tennis <laughs> for that one muffin. So you can't, you know, point is you can't overexercise to make up for bad eating habits. You know, you, you've, got to, you've got to balance what you eat and, you know, maybe have a couple cheat days built into your schedule. But you have to balance what you eat with some physical activity three or four times a week. I think those things have been pretty well thought out. And, and, and I think that advice is pretty solid from some of the um, cardiology associations and some of our internist colleagues that, uh -huh. that uh, give great recommendations on that. You know, balancing all those things with family is, is uh, as I'm having to do now, being in a, in a stage where I've got middle schoolers and high schoolers. I mean, their activities, it becomes a little harder to juggle all that, but uh, but there's ways to make it happen, just time management. And, and don't know. forget all, all your research that you're doing. And when yeah. you were talking about your research that you're doing, you're publishing these papers, I'm like, mm -hmm. well, he's busy, mm -hmm. he's working his practice, he's got mm -hmm. kids, mm -hmm. you got to exercise, eat well. What do you have time to do all that? How do you manage your time? Oh, gosh. It's... Um, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to make something a habit. And some of these things I've been doing for a long time. You know, I'll go for my own fitness. The easiest time for me is in the morning before everyone's had to get up and had their day start. So I've always been a morning person. Part of being, you know, a surgeon is, is being on call back in the day when we were in, in residency. And most surgery starts at 730 or 8 in the morning. So I'm used to getting up early. So for me, it's easy for me to get up at 5 and work out for an hour or 
go from six to seven thirty and go you know, play some sport that I want to you know, keep active in. And so my fitness is mostly in the morning. That's my routine that works for me. And my practice is set up so that most of my afternoons I have free, either to do family related things or a little bit of clinical research or, or what have you. I travel a lot for meetings like this, although it's great to have this one in my hometown, but you know, I travel a lot too. And we try and limit our travel to, you know, long weekends, things like that. So it it's, has less of an impact on my practice and family. So there's a way to do it. I mean, there's always a, a way to do it, but sometimes just having some things on the calendar as a routine and certain time slots makes it a little bit easier. All right. So yeah. tell us the two things that you know a lot of people don't know about you. One, well, along the lines of fitness. Then one is, you know, being a baseball player, it gets harder and harder the older I get to get 18 guys together <laughs> to play baseball. So I've been playing tennis now for the last, oh gosh, 15 years or so. So that's become my sport. Um, that's what keeps me, you know, it gives me my cardiovascular workout and a little bit of a strength workout. I um, play tennis too, so I get it. Yeah. yeah. It can be very addicting. It is. It is. And it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's. What, what good, level are you? You're playing USTA level? Playing four or five. Four or five? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Enough to, enough to get mad if I miss a shot. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but but not good enough to expect them all to be good. Well, anytime yeah. you're in DC, we need to get together. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of good places around DC. Oh gosh, I guess another thing. My father's still active throwing baseballs. You know, dad's dad's 83 and in good health, and my mom's about to be 80, and um, we're blessed to still have both of them back in LA in the same house that I grew up in. What's your passion? I'm really doing it. You know, that, that that would be another piece of advice is to find something you love to do, whatever it is. And then it's not like, you know, it's not like working. So I love to operate. I love orthopedics in general, which doesn't always mean surgery. It just means orthopedics. And uh, one of the nice things that's, that's helped keep me going is, is by getting more and more into regenerative medicine, it's opened up the body back to me. Or now instead of just focusing on shoulder and knee, like I did as a surgeon for so many years, now I'm able to go back and 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 revisit elbow anatomy and 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 wrist anatomy and hip anatomy and spine anatomy and things that I'm, I'm very interested in, and that keeps me passionate too. Just having something to think about and study and always asking questions, always asking you know why one more time to make sure you understand. So one last question: What do you mm -hmm. think will be is is or maybe will be your biggest accomplishment that you're proud of? Oh gosh, I, I just I just hope that people know that we tried to do the best we can for them and give them the best advice. I really see myself more as a teacher for my patients than a surgeon, mm -hmm. uh, where I hope to give them all the information that I've gleaned from 20 years now of doing this, and honestly, probably 30 years of being around people that are much smarter and more expert than myself that were my mentors. And I just try and bring that to each patient when I see them. And that way I, I feel good knowing that whatever their decision is, that they've made a decision based on all the information that, that they need. So, Wonderful. Yeah. So how, uh, how can our, our listener uh, get in touch with you? Well, we are very active in social media. So our moniker on Instagram and Facebook is at OrthoBioTexas. So O-R-T-H-O-B-I-O-T-E-X-A-S. You can certainly Google the Texas Orthobiologic Institute and get all that information. I have a very active YouTube channel where I post 
all my surgeries, a lot of musculoskeletal ultrasound, a lot of regenerative medicine procedures, a lot of my talks are posted there. So it's a kind of a hodgepodge of everything I have my hands in academically and, and professionally. So that's just under my name on YouTube. You just type in Dom Buford. We try and be easy to find depending on whatever medium our patients want to find us in. Well, great. Well, thank you for being here. And I'm so glad I get a chance to talk with Dr. Don Buffer, a talented orthopedic surgeon that also does orthobiologic. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164.